Welcome, welcome, welcome to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I am Cherry Gregg. It is a new year here at Studio Two. Do we have any New Year's resolutions for the show, Avi? Hmm, good question. Do we? I kind of think we do, actually. I think we do, too. We got to get some more visual content out there. Some stuff on YouTube, some stuff on Instagram. Exactly, Facebook, all of that. Yeah, we got we got to expand our reach a little bit. I also am endeavoring to remember my coworkers' birthdays. Oh, yeah, we're going to work on that. <laughs> we're going to work on that. So we have some ideas on resolutions, right? And But how do we follow through? It's tough. There's a science to it, Avi. Okay. And later in the show, we talk with a local professor who studies how we form habits. We want to hear from you. Do you have a New Year's resolution? Do you wish you could keep them? You can email studio2 at whyy.org or you can give us a call. The number is 888-477-9499. YouTube. Gonna make it happen. We're right, gonna Jeff? make it happen. Twenty twenty four. We claiming it. <laughs> claiming it. Uh, after we uh, claim that, we're gonna talk about winter weather in our skin. How do you protect against that cold, dry air? A dermatologist shares tips. And then later in this segment, we're gonna talk with an advocate who championed a new Pennsylvania law intended to improve conditions for women in prison. But before we get to that, Cherry, a few headlines. Here we go. We're going to jump right in. So we had our special inauguration edition of Studio 2 yesterday. And in case you didn't know, our new mayor, Sherelle Parker, wasn't the only official sworn into office. As of Tuesday, Kevin Bethel is Philadelphia's newest police commissioner. Now, we talked about him before, Avi, on the program. We sure did. He most recently served as the head of school safety for the city school district, but he was sworn in on Tuesday at a middle school in Kensington. And during his remarks, he said he planned to use a mix of prevention, intervention, and enforcement tactics to drive down crime. And during the mayor's speech, Mayor Parker made a reference to this new police department Mm. that would aggressively tackle the drug market in Kensington. And here's what she had to say. This commissioner, Kevin Bethel, has the support of his mayor 1,000%. I know he is going to do what is right to make the public health and safety of our city his number one priority. And let me tell you, he had a lot of big heavy hitters from PD, PPD and the audience, uh, including former Commissioner Charles Ramsey. He worked under. Yeah, who he worked under, as well as Richard Ross and the new public safety director, Adam Angier, as well as the new president of the FOP Lodge was there so there you go there you go kevin bethel yeah it's it's your job now kevin bethel I, kevin bethel and and you know there's a lot He'll of have the support of the mayor what is it a thousand thousand percent it's oh, a lot yeah. of percentage lots of, of challenges he has to attract more police officers a lot of work to do mm-hmm. dealing with budgets and all sorts of things and you know but he's very experienced started in the police department in 1986 you know been did a lot philly, of stuff been in philly for a long time mm-hmm. And we mentioned this yesterday, much like a lot of the other senior appointments. Yeah. Been in Philly for a long time. That is a common theme. Yeah. Um, We are turning now to mid-state Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. U.S. Rep. Scott Perry represents that part of the state. And there is now a lawsuit aiming to Mm. get him off of the coming primary ballot, citing, and this will sound familiar, his efforts to keep President Donald Trump in office and block the transfer of power to Democrat Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Perry is a pivotal figure in this entire drama. Uh, He's not been charged with a crime. He's not been indicted. But some of his texts and emails 
have been seized by the FBI. Mm -hmm. This lawsuit uh, is similar to what we've seen uh, with Trump in other states. This idea Mm -hmm. that because Perry, you know, participated in an attempted insurrection, that he's not eligible to be on the state's ballot. Uh, An activist filed this lawsuit, a guy named Gene Stillup. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this guy files a lot of lawsuits, but this one, of course, is, is catching a lot, a lot more attention than the typical one. And um, we'll see if it's successful, Cherry. You know, there have been similar lawsuits with other Congress people in other states, including Marjorie Taylor Greene mm-hmm. um, in Georgia. None of them successful. Yeah. So whether Perry's involvement is different somehow or Pennsylvania's courts see it differently, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who have attempted this before have not gotten very far. And we should mention that, you know, similar suits have been filed in Colorado and in Maine and and where uh Former President Donald Trump has been taken off the ballot there, but he's appealing. And Perry's lawyers say that if Trump is successful, it will nullify this lawsuit. So, you know, we'll be watching yeah, the, those. The trickle down effect. Yes, the trickle down effect. So we shall see. Okay. Yeah. Should we and, go to New Jersey now? Uh, yeah. Let's go to Jersey. Okay, and, let's um, go to Jersey. And uh, for our cool cats and kittens in Jersey, we have good news. Uh, the bobcat population is on the rise in that state. I didn't even know there were bobcats. I didn't know there were bobcats either. Um, There's 200 to 400 bobcats in New Jersey, and that's an increase, Cherry. I know. Apparently, they face challenges stemming from habitat loss, hunting, human conflicts, and road accidents. And um, these road-related fatalities on bobcats, that was particularly concerning with the confirmed number reaching its peak at 15 in 2019. You know, and so they're trying to, you know... Bring it back. Bring them back. Yeah, and they're a big part of the ecosystem, mm-hmm. and they, they help control the population of smaller mammals. They hunt deer, and deer are overpopulated in New Jersey and a lot Who of knew? other places. So uh, 200 to 400, you know, doesn't sound like a lot, but you have to start somewhere. And this is, uh, by the way, we just passed the 50th anniversary, I believe, of the Endangered Species Act, the federal one. Um, and so, you know, we've been trying to do stuff like this in an organized way for about half a century, sort of yeah. bring back these endangered species in a systematic way to try to restore their place in the ecosystem. And, look, and they do a lot of that in Jersey, don't they? Maybe. I feel like we talk about bears and animals. Well, and all I, stuff well I think they're going the other way with the bears. They're yeah, that's letting, true. Letting that's them hunt true. the bears. That's true. That's true. Um, but well, I, will, I would say this about New Jersey, though, right? It's, it's, a, it's a very densely populated state. Yeah. Very densely yeah. populated state. And so because of the, the amount of you know, expansion of human development there, these conflicts between habitat, species... Mm-hmm. And human environments are very common. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, right? If there's places where there's a lot of people, um, you do tend to have a deterioration of the natural habitat. And quickly, before we go to our newsmaker. Oh, yeah. Do you want to get to this one? Yeah, Let's do, do you, it. Okay. Do you do dry January? You ever heard of it? I don't. I have heard of it. Dry January basically means you don't drink alcohol for, for the, the month entire of, month. You're doing it? Yes. Yeah, I do it. And an estimated. You do 15, it every year. Every year. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. Most, and you stick to it every I do. year. Yeah, post after my birthday. I, st- I stick to oh. it after I stick my birthday. Um, and an estimated 15 to 19% of adults participate in Your it. Your birthday's in the beginning of the month. In the by beginning the way. of the month, yes. We and won't say which day exactly. Exactly. But it's early. Yeah. Uh, some of the benefits um, you can go to sleep, you know, uh, have overall quality of sleep. Your sex life may improve, in case people didn't know. I giving it that. up is yeah. good. 
It also can help with headaches, reducing headaches and fatigue because alcohol can be very dehydrating and your tolerance will decrease. So that means you can drink less alcohol, which means you'll be a cheaper date. So there's many reasons. Uh, I'm already a pretty cheap date, but I could be cheaper. <laughs> I agree. Um, it's what one thing I found interesting about this because we're going to talk about habits later in the yeah. show and how to form habits and how to break habits. And one of the we didn't this, this is a bad habit, right? Drinking yeah, a lot yeah. of alcohol. And when you disrupt that, even just for a month, it can have lingering effects down the line, even if you start drinking some yeah, again. Yeah, lots of positive effects. Right. It can wane. Your total amount of drinking can wane just because you've sort of disrupted what you normally do. So I found that really interesting. I like it. And... Um, so let's go to our newsmaker. Let's do it. Lawmakers in Pennsylvania have recently worked across party lines to unanimously pass a new law aimed at protecting women in prisons across the state. This new law includes reforms for incarcerated pregnant and postpartum moms, expands access to hygiene products, and a whole lot more at a time when women have become, and this is interesting, the mm -hmm. fastest growing incarcerated population nationwide. Joining us now to talk about the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act is Tony Willis, a major advocate behind the bill. She's also the founder and executive director of Ardella's House, a nonprofit supporting formerly incarcerated women. Tony Willis, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, and Tony, first of all, congratulations, because I know you worked for years trying to get this law passed. So you made it happen. So for folks who may not have heard of the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act, tell us what does it do for women? It's to stop shackling women during labor. It's to stop putting pregnant women in restricted housing, making sure women have unlimited feminine hygiene products. Women shouldn't have to choose between being able to call to check on their children and their family members and or to pay for feminine hygiene products. And it's also um, to make sure that the COs, which are correctional officers, are trained in trauma. Mm. You said restricted housing. Does that mean solitary confinement? Yes, solitary confinement. And, and, um, it is, but the preferred term is restricted housing? I say solitary confinement, but the bill took us forever to get passed because it kept going back and forth. Mm. Tomatoes, tomatoes. They didn't like... Um, solitary confinement some people and they wanted us to change it to, to restricted, restricted house. house interesting well maybe we should then get into the journey of this whole bill i think it's been five years plus mm -hmm. to get it across the finish line but then you got this unanimous vote at the end so what did you learn about harrisburg <laughs> going through this process mm -hmm. i don't know if i'm allowed to say it <laughs> <laughs> give us a taste it must have been frustrating very frustrating because no one was asking them to open up the door and let everybody out. All I was asking were for them to give the women dignity while they were incarcerated. That was important. Mm -hmm. And stop treating the women like animals because some animals are treated better than women when they're incarcerated. Because just like you mentioned, women are the fastest growing population of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And why is that? What, do you have any understanding of what is what is? you know, feeding into that trend? Sometimes I say women are incarcerated because of crimes of passion. They have very low self-esteem and they pick the wrong person to love and they got caught up in something or drug use. Mm -hmm. But we all know that poverty um, plays a major part in women and men mm -hmm. being incarcerated. Quick follow-up to you because I covered criminal justice reform for a long time and a lot of that effort was around men. What is different about women who are incarcerated versus when you think about normal you know, people being incarcerated, it's mostly a man in your mind. 
women, a high percentage of women are mothers. Mm. And women that are incarcerated are mothers, sisters, grandmothers. And even incarcerated, you know, men have been the ones that have been being incarcerated for years. Mm. Even if you look at the jumpsuits that the women wear, those are men's jumpsuits. Nothing in prison is geared towards women. Mm-hmm. Nothing at all. Yeah, I want to read a quote here. This is uh, Mike Jones, a Republican from York County. My BFF. Yeah, now your mm-hmm. BFF. Um, this is a quote he gave to the Pennsylvania Capital Star. Um, he says, this is not a soft on crime bill. This is an acknowledgement that prisons were not designed with women in mind. If prisons were designed with women in mind, how would they look different, Tony? Even the visiting rooms would be designed more for children to come to visit their mothers. Um, what, what word should I use? Child-friendly, maybe? Mm-hmm. And, and it's not. I think it should be more things when the children come to visit their mothers that they can communicate and sit there, whether it's to read a book to their child, play a game with their child. You know, most prisons, you can only have contact when the people come in and when the people are leaving and no in-between. So that's how a visiting room would look. And also, um, the colors in there. Everything is so hard. The mm-hmm. the battleship gray. There's nothing. I know it's not supposed to be a resort. Okay? <laughs> I do know that. But let's help prepare them for life after incarceration. And one of the things you do to that is Ardella's house is actually has a house. So tell us about um, this house because years ago it was just it was this idea but you brought it into fruition you know what i used to burn your ears talking about this house that i was going to open up every time i would see you yeah. um the house is beautiful we got it the five bedroom house out it's a three story house in strawberry mansion everything is brand new um it was important for the women to come home to something beautiful and bright I have been into some programs that I always joked and said that if I had a drug problem, I probably would get high before I went in because it was dark and dreary. Mm. Everything is beautiful in this house. Matter of fact, the house looks better than my home. And every woman (laughs) has her own room. Because if you've been incarcerated for a long time, sharing that small cell with a woman, smelling her breath when she goes to the bathroom, whatever, a part of your growth is for you to have your own space. Yeah. Let me ask you, uh, going back to the bill, as we have about a minute left, before this legislation was passed, women were were shackled Mm. during delivery? Yes. Their babies were taken from them as soon as they gave birth? Yes. And I forgot now it's a three-day bonding period with their baby, but yes. Um, I mean, was that really – did people really consider – pregnant women delivering babies a flight risk? I mean, what was the rationale? That's a good question because I could only see them running to get more meds <laughs> mm, yeah. uh, during labor. And oh, and also a part of the bill is to make sure that women are strip searched by female officers if there's a female officer available and not a male officer. Huh. There's so much change. I mean, this was a five year. What's next on the agenda for you? Because this was a big deal and it's it's been going around nationally to yeah. something um, as we wrap up just Everyone, seconds, everyone yeah. tells us Pennsylvania is um, a hard state to get a bill passed <laughs> because some states' bills were passed so quickly, yeah. and I just couldn't understand it. Um, because, again, like I said, I'm not saying 
you know, let everybody out. Just treat them with dignity. But our next bill will be compassionate release. When women are dying and have been giving their um, date to, to pass, why are they dying in prison? Let's bring them home and let them die with dignity. Hmm. Thank you. Thank we, you. We will track that. Thank you so much, uh, Tony Willis, founder of Ardella's House. Uh, we appreciate the time on Studio Two. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Anytime. Com- yes. And coming up, can you believe it's 2024? Well, we're digging into the science behind making our New Year's resolutions stick. Stick with us. Lots to come. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You are listening to Studio 2 on WHYY. I'm Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman Arid. Cherry, yes. you know I love to do a little history. I know you do. Roll it on out. And I cribbed this one from the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. Shout out Wall Street Journal. But if you do research on New Year's resolutions and you and you look into the science of it, a lot of it tracks back to the study in the mm-hmm. mid-1980s done right here in Pennsylvania where a local professor up in Scranton put a request out on local mm-hmm. television asking folks to participate in a study about New Year's resolutions. And then he tracked the folks over a couple years. And what he found, Cherry, was pretty interesting. Mm. Yes, Most people did not stick to them in the long term, the resolutions. Mm -hmm. But after six months, 40 percent of the people in the study were still successfully New Year's resolving. I love that. It turns out New Year's resolutions have real power. They do. There's science to support this idea that a pledge made at a specific time, a time associated with fresh starts, can actually help change behavior. And in general... New Year's resolutions, they provide a window into how we form habits. Katie Milkman studies just that, the science of change. Mm. She's a professor at the Wharton School, co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, and author of How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Katie Milkman, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, let's hear them. What are your New Year's resolutions? Mm -hmm. Tell us about a New Year's resolution from the past that stuck or maybe one that didn't. Do you struggle to form new habits? Maybe you've unlocked the key to personal growth and would like Mm -hmm. to share it with all of us. Please share that. Yeah, I need that. I need it. Call 888-477-9499 to participate in this conversation or email studio2 at org. So, Katie, it's a new year. And for many people, they try to say, hey, I want to be different this time. What is it about the new year that we feel this hope that change is more possible now than, say, during the rest of the year? Yeah, it's a great question and something I've studied extensively in my work on the fresh start effect. It turns out that the way that we think about time is actually not linear. So one day after the next after the next, we don't sort of see them as equally distant from one another. We think about our lives like we're characters in a book and like we're living chapters in that novel. And uh, every New Year's Day feels like the start of a new chapter to many people, right? It's a new year, new beginning, and you can close the, the chapter before. When you look back, you can say, I feel more distinct from the person I was before and anything I failed to do in the last chapter, well, this chapter might be different. And New Year's is actually just one of many moments that has this 
motivating effect. Mondays are fresh starts. They're just smaller ones. Um, the celebration of a birthday, many holidays, and we see spikes in goal setting on popular goal setting websites, as well as increases in gym attendance and searching for the term diet on Google, among other things, <laughs> mm. at all these fresh start dates. It's really interesting. Um, and I'll read a comment here from Jeff who says, the new year is really just a good time to set new goals, plans, and things to strive to accomplish. So Jeff agrees with you, Katie, and there seems to be a, like a real phenomenon here. This is not something that gyms have made up mm -hmm. to sucker us into membership. But I want to ask something a little more general. We're talking about forming habits here, new habits. What's the goal? Like, how do we know that a habit has become a habit? Yeah, it's a really great question. We we actually studied this in a big project we finished last year um, where we used machine learning to analyze the behaviors of gym goers and hospital caregivers and to try to figure out what constituted stable habit formation and how long it took in both of those data sets. And we had thousands and thousands of people who were analyzing with our algorithms. Um, and what we what we sort of look at as a signature of habituation is just predictability. When we throw mm. a lot of information into a model, can we basically say now we have really reliable predictions of your behavior because you're no longer you no longer look random. We know if it's Monday at 4 p.m. you'll be at the gym. We know if it's Tuesday at 4 p.m. you won't be because you're a Monday gym, afternoon gym rat, not a Tuesday afternoon gym rat. That's kind of the idea. And we do see that um, a large fraction of people in both the data sets we study do eventually habituate in terms of gym attendance and, and the other um, way we look at this was at hand sanitizing in hospitals among caregivers. But there's no one amount of time that it takes to form a habit. Everybody's different. And on average, habits form much faster around less complex and more often repeated behaviors like, say, hand sanitizing mm -hmm. in our context than um, something more complicated and effortful like uh, getting to the gym. So don't be discouraged if it's, you know, been three, four weeks of trying to form that gym habit and it's not there yet. For most people, it takes order of magnitude months for that to become really predictable and pattern-like. And and uh, it's faster, more like a week or two on average for something simple like, you know, brushing your teeth or hand sanitizing. And following up on that, because I, I feel like I fall into bad habits and it's very unintentional that I've picked up this bad sure. habit of like, slouching on the couch and eating chips whereas <laughs> I, it's like I have to be like that's intentional. not a bad habit that's a good habit in my book but go ahead <laughs> but and then I have to be very intentional about you know forming positive or good habits things that would be healthy for me or or good for me is there a difference between what we fall into and that sort of becomes a habit versus the things that we um, have to be more intentional about and why does it seem like the things that we fall into tend to be more negative or That's is that just my question. perception? I don't know. <laughs> I, I do think it's your perception, but there's also a science to it. So the things that form, what, what forms a habit is that you're repeatedly engaging in a behavior and it's being rewarded. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't mean rewarded like you're patting yourself on the back. I mean, you're getting some positive from it. So falling onto the couch, you may feel guilty about, but you are getting rewarded with the experience of feeling that relaxing, uh, you know, weight <laughs> off your feet. And, and if you're watching TV, it's, it's making you laugh. So there's a reward inherent in the activity. Um, so when you repeat the behavior and you get rewarded, that's, and you do it enough, that starts to become habituated. And, 
And so a lot of things that we wish we didn't do, whether it's nail biting or binge watching TV or, you know, not picking up your laundry off the off the floor or procrastinating on your work, those things, it's easy to see how they're rewarded, right? Um, even though you're not intending to reward them, they give you instant gratification. It's more instantly gratifying not to pick up the laundry than to pick up the laundry for mm -hmm. most of us. Whereas the things we want to put on autopilot tend to require you're going to have to think effortfully about how do I make it instantly gratifying to pick up the laundry or to go to the gym? How can I make it so that there is a reward in the moment connected to this activity? And that tends to feel effortful for the things that bring that we want to do. And the reason is most of the things we want to do are associated with long-term goals, mm. something you'll get a value from in the, in the long term, right? You quit smoking. That's really good for you in the long run, but right now it feels crummy to restrict yourself from your nicotine habit and exercise also good for you in the long run but the first time you go wow it yeah. hurts yeah no but kidding. we have to change that equation and that's one of the keys to forming habits the good habits and so i think what you're pointing out is just sort of a natural feature of the human operating system is that the things we naturally acquire habits around tend to be sort of fun in the short run but bad for us in the long run and the things we want to form habits mm. around tend to be good for us in the long run but unpleasant in the short run and we have to work to change that dynamic so that we can succeed Katie Shift broke the paradigm. that down I like that I, okay so we're good. talking with Katie yeah. Milkman by the way a professor at the Wharton School co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative and author of How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be we're talking about New Year's resolutions, but really mm -hmm. more broadly, we're talking about the science of forming habits and, and of change. Um, and if you want to participate, give us a call, 888-477-9499, the email address, studio2 at org. Interesting email here mm -hmm. from Tanara. 19 years ago, my New Year's resolution was to make my bed every day. I still make my bed every day. It allows me to start off the day with a task complete. I want you to break down mm. that resolution, Katie Milkman, and what makes it good. And, and what, I'll, I'll note that it's specific. It's kind of small, but it's specific and it's achievable. I mean, is that where we want to start with our resolutions or do we want to start big and then narrow down as reality hits? Well, I, I love that it's bite size and the goal probably there probably is a higher order goal there right she's talking about order in her life mm -hmm. and, and feeling like she's accomplished something and starting the day on good footing so there is a higher order goal than just this um micro goal of get up and make my bed but the micro goal is so important to success so um we did some research for instance showing that volunteers who had agreed to work 200 hours a year for a, a really important cause tended not to hit those goals when they were just reminded to do a little every week to hit their 200 hour yearly target. But when we reminded them instead, that's four hours every week, we actually saw an 8% increase in volunteering. Hmm. And this aligns with other research showing that um, if you try to save $5 a day or encourage people to save $5 a day, as opposed to $150 a month, which is exactly the same thing, hmm. you see more than triple the engagement um, with that bite-sized goal. So making your bed every day fits into this pattern. It's a bite-sized goal, like the $5 a day or the four hours a week, as opposed to this global, I am going to you know, get my life in order or make my house more tidy. It's, uh, it's what's a specific action you can take at a specific time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so people find that approachable. And when the plan is clear about what will cue your action, right? I get out of bed, that's when I'll do it. That also increases the likelihood we'll follow through on our goal. So there's a lot to like here. Hmm. 
but I don't think it should limit people into saying, oh, you can only have a really narrow goal. You can have big goals. Your goal can be, I want to get in shape or I want to learn a new language or, you know, I want to find a new job that's more uh, engrossing that I love more. But you need then to have a, a specific plan of action. What will you do when? And there need to be bite-sized steps you can take in order to achieve that goal to see real progress. What I hear you saying, Katie, if you were a public radio station, for instance, doing mm -hmm. a pledge drive and you broke it down into hourly mini goals, that might help you achieve your goal. I'm just saying. <laughs> that helps a lot. And we, uh, Katie, we do have a caller. Grace is on the line and um, very interesting resolution. Grace, you are on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Hi, this year I decided not to, you know, make a new year, just a black new year resolution. Instead, for every month, I'm going to pick something. So this month, I'm starting off with kindness, kindness to myself and to anybody else. Then I would go on from there. The next month, I would choose something else to do and stick to it for a month. So that at the end of the year, I think I'll feel better about having fulfilled my goals. Mm. I like that. I love that. I like it. I want to ask a follow up. Thank you so much for that comment, Grace. I want to ask you a follow up uh, or uh, piggyback on what Grace had to say is, you know, I like the idea of picking one thing. And I just wonder, you know, some people will have all these goals and all these things. Like how many should we have? Like, should we have, is there a, a magic number or is one the magic number? It's a great question. Well, first of all, I just want to say I love Grace's mm -hmm. insight that we have many fresh starts in the year and New Year's, while it may be the one that most of us fixate on and it gets the most media attention, it's just one new beginning. Every Monday is a new beginning. Every new month is a new beginning. Mm -hmm. And we see these upticks when we look at, at data on goal setting and goal pursuit at those new beginnings. So she is wisely taking advantage of 12 new beginnings this year instead of just the one that we get at New Year's. Um, I also think it's really smart to focus on one goal at a time. There's research out of UCLA showing that if we make these detailed plans for multiple goals, and detailed plans are normally absolutely critical to goal achievement, but when we make detailed plans about multiple goals at the same time, it actually reduces the likelihood of success because we feel overwhelmed by the pressure to do all these things. Mm. And so by breaking her goals, uh, so she's going to have 12 yearly goals. If she said, I'm going to set 12 goals for the new year and started planning for all of them, she would be overwhelmed and demotivated. But by by setting one each month, now what she's done is take advantage of all the fresh starts and ensure that she has one focus and won't be demotivated as she plans out how to achieve. So I think it's a great idea. And I think, frankly, all of us should be thinking more about what are the moments we'll latch on to throughout the year as fresh starts to approach new things, as opposed to thinking New Year's is our only opportunity. This is a funny one from Jordana, who says, I have three roommates. <laughs> My resolution is to stop eating their food. More power to you, Jordana. Um, <laughs> I don't have a question based off of that, Kitty, but I, I do. I am curious about <laughs> about whether or not we should share our goals and whether there's any utility mm, to sharing them that's a good with one. others because there's some accountability built in. But then I also might I might sort of self-moderate what I'm willing to shoot for if I know I'm going to share with other or people. Or you could wake up the haters. Or you could wake up the haters. I mean, so should I share? Should I keep it to myself? How do, how do you navigate that? In general, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing, the accountability it creates, the shame of, of not being able to follow through in front of someone whose opinion matters to you, does increase the likelihood of success. Hmm. Um, and P.S. on this sort of quitting goal, you know, I'm going to stop mm. eating other people's food. <laughs> 
the 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 best way to implement a lot of quitting goals is using what's called a commitment device, which is basically penalizing yourself in some way if you don't um, if you don't succeed. Uh, uh. And and this is very counterintuitive to people. We're used to being you know fined by the the city if we don't um, park in a, a legal place or if we speed. You know somebody else slaps our hand. Your boss if you hit miss a deadline, there's some penalty. So we're used to other people trying to help us avoid temptations by slapping fines and penalties on us. But it, it's counterintuitive to do it to yourself. But when you have a goal, it turns out these tools, which are called commitment devices, where you either penalize yourself with the shame of accountability to someone else, they'll find out I, I messed up, or literally put money down that you will forfeit if you fail to achieve your goal can be quite powerful. Huh. So in the case of the the roommate not eating, you might consider a formal commitment device where your roommates are the referees and you can use websites, which I should say I have no affiliation with, but there are websites <laughs> like Beminder and Stick.com where you can literally set up a contract, put your credit card on the line, choose a referee, oh say the gosh. goal. Oh my gosh. And if you don't achieve, they'll send the money to a charity of your choice. Whoa. And P.S. They have charities on either side of hot button issues. So if you want it to really sting, you can choose a charity oh. you hate to get your money. So that's interesting, though. This idea that um, if let's say, you're trying to form a gym habit, maybe you bundle that with a mm -hmm. temptation or something that you, that you want to do. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to restrict yourself from do, doing something, you bundle that with like a punishment um, to make that exactly one stick. so carrots and sticks that's that's the magic of the way the human mind um, gets motivated right so if you can make the gym more alluring mm -hmm. so that it's fun now you won't put off going you can build that habit and I've studied temptation bundling which means yeah only let yourself binge watch your favorite show while you're exercising for instance and that can increase gym attendance but the flip side is if you're worried about procrastinating or want to quit doing something how do you make the stakes higher in the moment so that uh, even though, you know, in the long run, um, if it were, you know, many, many days away, the, the penalty wouldn't feel that harsh of your roommates slowly getting grumpier and grumpier with you. But if you have a fine that's going to hit you right now, yeah. um, you may be able to bring that pain forward and, and make the right decision. Mm. And if you are just tuning in, we're talking about New Year's resolutions, how to make them stick. Also, how to create and be more intentional about habits and change. Katie Milkman is our guest today. She's a professor at the Wharton School, co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative and author of How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Um, if you want to participate, you can call us 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. Funny email from Elizabeth who says, I've never believed in resolutions because I don't think of January as a particular time for a fresh start. Frankly, I'd rather hibernate. Here, However, here. <laughs> a few years ago, I did make a resolution. I've been keeping fairly well. That resolution, make more pies. Result, happy husband. And I want to talk to you now about you know, encouraging others change. Cause I know people who have gotten, you know, news from their doctor, you're not supposed to drink anymore. You're not supposed to eat this thing anymore. And you know, it, it can be like a health thing. Like mm -hmm. if you do eat this, you'll get sick or you'll, you won't be able to, you know, control your high blood pressure. Why is it so hard for people when they get this news, right? And it could affect their life, right? Their health. Why are they many times just it's just so hard to shift and make that change. Yeah, I mean, there are so many internal barriers to making change. That's really the focus of my research and my book. And um, what we have to do is figure out wh what are the big obstacles and make plans that will overcome them. In the case of something like a major health condition mm -hmm. that means you need to make a lifestyle change, 
one of the biggest barriers tends to be that, uh, you know, it just, the, the rewards, even though they're so steep, right? Your life, what could be more important? Mm. Yes. They are delayed. Whereas the right. gratification you get mm -hmm. from eating the junk food is instantaneous. And we're very bad at dealing with that, that delayed, um, type of reward. It, it's called present bias. Uh, and so what we have to do is think about how can we bring the rewards forward? How can we make it more instantly gratifying to make the right choice? Again, commitment devices, which we've already talked about, you could find yourself so that you bring some of the penalty forward of, of missteps, or you can try to find ways to make it more fun. So I would certainly encourage people, for instance, if you're thinking about how to deal with a diet, a lot of people make the mistake of saying, I'm just going to look for the the you know most sinless diet that's going to get me to my goal most efficiently, right? I'm going to eat only kale and carrots, <laughs> but mm -mm. you're not going to stick to that for more than a day because you're going to be starving and miserable. So what you have to do is find a way to make those new um, eating goals more enjoyable. Can you find some healthy foods that you actually relish? Maybe it's that there's a smoothie that it, okay, it's not quite the same as a milkshake from Shake Shack or whatever your favorite place is, but Smoothies it's still good, delicious. Yeah. And how do you so encourage? So we need to focus on that. If you're like, if that's your spouse or your kid or you know your mom yeah. or dad, how do you as a as a? It's not you trying to make the change, but you want to be encouraging, but not a nag at the same time. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'd say there's a few things. One is that you may be able to help them find and explore some of those um, those new eating habits, say, that uh, that aren't a drag, but actually, you know, there's a lot of foods out there. So maybe you can help them experiment mm -hmm. and explore. The other thing I'll say is actually tandem goal pursuit can be incredibly valuable. So to the extent that you are willing to make some changes in your own life as a supporter, that could really help the person who you are trying to support, especially if you live together or spend a lot of time together. In general, we are really influenced by the, the behaviors of the people around us. If you, for instance, as a college student are randomly assigned a roommate who is more studious, it increases your grades. Whoa. So uh, we, when we're around someone, we see the behaviors are engaging and we do them ourselves um we did one experiment where we either paid individuals a dollar every time they went to the gym and a friend of theirs who they signed up with also got that reward or we only paid them each a dollar if they went together which makes it harder to get your dollar but we actually found people went 35 uh, percent more to the gym when they were paid for going in tandem and the oh two reasons gosh. uh cited when we looked at this were that people found it more fun to go together and they felt there was accountability um and so think about whether or not you can be a role model too so you Lead may want to help, help exactly and can you can you find ways to make those changes in your life with them to be a supporter so you approach the goals together and p.s even if you haven't had a major medical diagnosis it's not going to hurt you to help eat healthier either. True. Uh, just a couple minutes left, Katie. want to read in a couple more emails. One from Jen. I think small New Year's resolutions are the way to go. Going to the gym one day a week is better mm -hmm. than not at all. Tracking only your grocery expenses is better than not keeping an eye on your money. So some perspective there from mm -hmm. Jen. But I got to read this comment from Matt, who's a <laughs> hater. About two decades ago, I made a New Year's resolution to never make another New Year's resolution. <laughs> we see and Al I Banks will... with his hands up. Our engineer, Our engineer likes that. Uh, but, but is there a downside to resolutions, Katie? We have about a minute left. Because I do wonder about people who set goals and fail mm. and how that affects their psyche moving forward. Any downside here? Yeah, it's a great question. If you if you constantly set goals that are unachievable and constantly fail, that can be discouraging for sure. So uh, it is important to set goals that are bite-sized. It's important to set goals that are achievable but stretch you a little bit and have some grace with yourself and and recognize that um, you know even when when it's two steps forward, one step 
back, you're still a step ahead of where you started. So goal setting and resolutions tend to be good on average. We have lots of evidence that goals help. And yet do be kind to yourself because failure is a part of success, right? It's part of it. It's part mm -hmm. of the path. Have a growth mindset about it. Recognize that you're growing and you can learn from each misstep and do better the next time. I love One that. One step is better than no steps at all. I, I know, love, it. love it. That was Katie Milkman, a professor at the Wharton School, co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative and author of How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Katie, thank you so much for your contribution on Studio 2 today. Thanks for having me. Maybe your goal is to have healthier skin. <laughs> We're going to help you out in the next segment. We're learning about winter skincare do's and don'ts. Stick with us on Studio 2. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Cherry. Yes. Let's talk about the weather. We have to, unfortunately. Uh, we do. We, we do. might see some flakes this week. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about skin flakes. I'm talking about snowflakes. <laughs> it's cold outside. And really, this time of year, there's nothing better than a day inside with the radiator, watching the snow from the comfort of the great indoors. Yeah, I, I love winter, Avi. I mean, but you know what doesn't? What love doesn't? winter? My skin. Your skin doesn't okay. love winter. With the hot and dry air on the inside, my skin gets dry, gets itchy, itchy it gets ashy. You it know? does. Yeah, it gets real ashy, especially my knees and calves. Oh, no. <laughs> it causes a lot of problems for folks. And so I'll put you on the spot. Okay, sure. Do you, Avi Wolfman Arendt, have a skincare routine? What would you guess? <laughs> um, I would think no. Yeah, it's a hard no. Yeah. Not that yeah. I shouldn't have one. Mm -hmm. I just don't have one. It's not something that I've built a habit around, Cherry. Yeah, but many of us form habits when it comes like I do. I have a very specific skincare routine and it's based on things we read online learn from our friends or even routines passed down from generations in our families but how much care is too much and what's the bare minimum and with us in the studio is Dr. Christina Chung dermatologist at Swigert Dermatology Group to answer all of our winter skincare questions Christina welcome to studio two thanks for having me Sherry Navi that was a long wind up there. Right, I know. Let's talk let's about the skin. Um, cold weather. What's happening to our skin when that cold, dry air hits it? So cold weather is a bear. So <laughs> not only is it kind of sad and gloomy and depressing out, the cold air, it's, you know, the cold air can do lots of things if you're out in, in it. However, I think the biggest single factor that affects your skin in the winter is the fact that the heat is going in our houses, yeah. right? Ah. So it gets cold, we're all heating, and oftentimes the heating is really drying, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is people suffer from, you know, we, we call it eczema season. You feel yeah. that, you feel that you hit that 40 degree weather when people are, you know, are turning their thermostats on, and it's like clockwork. 
everyone comes in complaining of dry, itchy, Mm -hmm. uh, ashy skin. And so that's probably the single biggest thing that happens in the winter. Heat goes on, sucks the life and the moisture out of your skin, makes you very dry. So it's not the cold air. The problem is the warm air that's counteracting the cold air in our houses, in our offices. Yes, the cold weather can definitely, you know, affect the skin. But more, like the more common, like clinical um, I guess, nuisances that everybody is mm, trying to deal yeah. with on a daily basis usually comes from like that heat. Wow. And so just talk a little bit about what our skin is designed to do and what we need to give it in the wintertime in order to, so it can do its job. So our skin is, I have a friend who always tells me every time, every time I see him, you know, Christina, the skin is the largest organ in your body. <laughs> and, I, and I always say. Wait, he tells you that? You're a dermatologist. Right. And I always say you will thank you for reminding me for the thousandth time. <laughs> so it is, it's designed to keep everything on the outside that's not supposed to be on the inside, right? And it's supposed to create this like protective barrier. And so. So that's essentially what the skin barrier function is. And so you need it to have be in like perfect homeostasis for it to be doing everything it's supposed to do, right? So compromised barrier could be you cut your skin, right? You have an Mm -hmm. abrasion, right? Anything that's inflamed. But when your skin is dry and itchy and it doesn't feel like supple, it loses its elasticity. And so you're kind of really compromising what nature has intended it to do if it's really over dry. And Mm -hmm. so that's one of the the things that happens in 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 the winter that prevents it from actually doing what it's supposed to do. When it's dry, it can't really do its job the best that it's ca- that, that it can. So how do I uh, make sure that it's not dry? And let's start with some low-hanging fruit. So mm-hmm. imagine you're like me, someone who's a skincare novice. Um, I'm not looking for the most expensive products mm-hmm. on the market, but something that maybe is pretty simple and accessible to just help moisten my skin a little bit during this this dry skin season. I was going to say, Avi, you should get on this bandwagon. I mean, it's like men's skincare. Is, like, uh-huh. right, is it really? Right? Yeah. Is it really? It's, it's <laughs> thought you'd be right hipster now. enough yeah. to, to be like, hey, I use this whole line. I'm glad I, lo- I'm glad I look hipster enough to you. I fooled you into thinking I'm cool. But I'm not, Christina. That's the problem. And okay. you need lotion. <laughs> Just lotion. Just lotion. That's it? That's it? Yeah, no. So it's really funny. I get that question a lot. Like, why am I so dry? I put lotion on every day. And so I have to back it up, right? Because you're putting lotion lotion on because your skin feels dry. But what what else is happening in the winter that makes your skin dry? And what happens there is, do you know what this, the, 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 the single biggest thing that dries skin out is, right, no that we do on a daily basis? Not drinking enough water? Is, no, it's wa- not drinking. It is water, but it's not drinking water. It's actually applying water to your body. Showering. Yes. So I always say the first, if you really want to not have dry skin, right, I always tell my patients, I look them straight in the eye, I say, you can put all on all the lotion you want, right? I was like, but if you continue to apply soap and water the same way as you do in the summertime, in the wintertime, you're mm. going to be drying your skin oh, out. Oh, but I got a shower. So wait, I take got less shower. showers? Oh, yeah, Sherry. Oh, wait, my wait, God. Wait, 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 I wait, get wait, this wait, reaction wait, all the time. Like, not daily? No, it's really funny if you've noticed um, trending kind of on social media. It's been going on for like a month or two or even longer. It's like, how many times should you shower? Right. What's, what's and the answer? Honestly, the answer is as little as possible to keep to prevent yourself from feeling dry. So some people just naturally are oilier. People who are younger ha- like produce more oils, right? So when you're like a teenager and you're pimply and all your like hormones and your oil glands are all like you know pumping out tons of oil and stuff, and your skin is not aged, yeah. right? You could probably get away with two showers some pe- for some people. Um, anyone who has young and has eczema or a tendency toward dry dry skin, first thing we say is you got to stop bathing, right? So as we get older, is, is, right, is it we're talking. With you see my or, face, Christina? I see this face oh a God. lot, Sherry. Is it, is, it, is, it, <laughs> is it bathing with soap specifically or literally any bathing at all? Water. 
Water, water's the problem. So what should people be doing? Birth I mean, soap like- too. Yeah, no. So, so what I always so so we could talk about the cultural aspects of bathing also. But literally, I I was an associate professor at Hahnemann for what sixteen years or so, and we had to address the bird bath all the time. It is any water. Yes, soaps. So hot water. So so soap and water. Right. So amongst water, hot water is a lot worse than cold water. Right. And with soap, liquid soap is generally more stripping and drying than bar soap. Antibacterial bar soaps are more drying than the the bar soaps that have like kind of moisturizers within them. We we need to do a whole show. We're going to have to do a whole show on this bathing thing because that that is a a real situation. (laughs) Um, But let's talk about (laughs) some of the um, some of the fads because like hyaluronic acid is a big thing I, I go get facials every so often and they told me to start using that and i do see my my skin like plump up is it good who should be using it's, that it's called hyaluronic acid yes it okay. is and take i would notes. think acid, take notes I, i'm writing it down hyaluronic acid. i would think acid wouldn't do that but it, it actually is makes your skin plumper yeah, the acid really is just a molecule. I mean, it is a little bit misleading because you think that if you're putting acid on your skin like vinegar or something, you're, it's like caustic and it's going to you know, yeah. burn it off. But that's not really what it does. And so I generally tell my tell my patients, right, when it comes to this, like back to Avi's kind of question also, is that like, what do you do, right? So it's really the only things that you need to do, right? Keep yourself clean, not and clean is clean is technical. We're coming back on a different episode about clean. Um, <laughs> Not too clean, right? But then moisturize, right, with yep. a lotion and sunscreen. Obviously, is a big deal. But in terms of like hyaluronic acid, you know, it's funny. A lot of these it, technically ingredients, right? They can like the the molecule is big. It like makes your skin feel supple. It it really does give you that smooth, glowy, like dewy glow. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some formulations that people will have trouble with, right? Because mm-hmm. the formulations in the vehicles really matter um, in in the in the in the winter time. So if you're using more of like a, a thinner gel-based kind of hyaluronic acid formula, that's going to be a little bit too drying. So you may want to use hyaluronic acid, um, but you might want to use it in like a thicker, more moisturizing form. So technically speaking, neither here nor there. Real quick. We only have about 30, 45 seconds. I'm just curious what you think about influencer culture and skincare because it does seem to be blowing up. And as someone who works in this field, how do you regard it? It's frustrating. I think influence. I think inf- influencers can really be a huge boon to get the word out. I think it's really, really tricky. I think skincare is really, really a really broad topic. And yeah. I really think that, you know, it's... I would probably say to most people out there, if you have a question, you probably should go to your dermatologist. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And the biology of skin is very, very, very complicated, much more complicated. And as we wrap up, if you in 10 seconds, the three things we should do to keep our skin, you know, moist. So um, less, less water, less soap. Okay, moisturization. Boom. There it is. There it is. That's Christina Chung, dermatologist at Schweiger Dermatology Group. Thank you so much for joining us, Doctor. Thanks for having me, guys. That was, was fun. fun. That was. I'm like. I'm <laughs> I don't know. Sherry's open. calling okay. this fun. I'm like. Um, what? Our minds are blown. <laughs> I know. But, but I do have to thank the people that made the show yes, possible. Yes, definitely. Today. For Producers: sure. Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's program from Studio Two at WHYY in Philadelphia. I am not Simon and Garfunkel. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us. And moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. Moisturize. <laughs>